listening to a resource from Jambrew Anglican Church. Well, I reckon that it is difficult for us in Australia to really get our heads around the storming of the United States Capitol on the 6th of January this year. We see so much of this in movies that we sometimes don't know that it's really real. But imagine if Anthony Albanese was elected Prime Minister two years ago and a mob of Scott Morrison supporters broke through the guards into Parliament House in Canberra and they entered the building and they threatened politicians and they smashed up and stole things. It'd be almost too hard to believe, wouldn't it? But that's exactly what happened a few weeks ago to the US Congress. And the impact continues to be felt throughout the free world. I don't know how you felt about it, but it's right to be nervous and upset and angry. And I think that's because we expect democracy to work. (laughs) In Australia, we like our democracy and we love it that our politicians can shout at each other in the chambers and then grab a beer together in a Canberra pub. We expect it to work, and I think we get a little bit wobbly when it doesn't. God has made us to obey our rulers. He's hardwired it in our own human beings in the world. We were created to follow God, our loving ruler. But before too long, as we know from the opening chapters of the Bible, we rejected him, and we rejected his rule for our lives. And we chose to follow ourselves and to ignore him. And the consequence is judgment and death. And we're powerless to do anything about it. And that's why the only way that we can be forgiven and restored to our loving ruler is if he fixed up the mess for us. And he did. And he acted by making promises, which he has kept every single time. And part of the big picture is that he'd call out a special group of people to be his very own treasured possession. And through a fairly messy journey, God's people ended up with a king, a great king. His name was King David. He's the David who beat Goliath. He's the David who united God's people under his rule. He's the David who God gave us so that we'd know what a king should be like. But King David was far from perfect. He was very human and very sinful. So much so that he committed adultery and then organised the murder of her husband. He was far from perfect. But God used him so that we would see what a king should be like. And so tonight we begin an 18-week journey through 22 chapters of 1 Kings. And the reason we are doing that is because as we see 1 Kings, we will see life after David and we'll see what kingship looks like in God's kingdom with all its glory and all its disgrace. And it will help us to see more and more why it is that Jesus Christ, the son of David, is the one that we need the most. Before 1 Kings was 2 Samuel. 
And at the end of 2 Samuel, they had relief from a horrible plague that was amongst God's people. And it came because of the sin of David yet again. After a gap of time, we hear that King David's time is beginning to come to an end. So 1 Kings 1.1, right at the start, says, King David was now very old, and no matter how many blankets covered him, he could not keep warm. King David is now frail. He's an old man. He can't keep himself warm in his palace bed. This great warrior of old is now battling old age. And the great king of Israel is a shadow of his former glory. Old age is part of life, isn't it? And even though we try very hard to bring as much dignity as possible... Aging is sad. How many times have you been to the funeral of an old person only to see a photo on the order of service of decades before? You thought about that before. Why don't we use the photo of them in the nursing home from three weeks before they died? Why do we use this photo of them in their 40s or whatever the peak was in their life? It's because the glory days were long ago. And that's what we want to try and remember. But now we see the great King David in his sad, frail state. And he can't even generate enough heat to stay warm under a thick doona. So his advisors, his advisors have a plan. Verse 2. So his advisors told him, let us find a young virgin to wait on you and look after you, my Lord. She will lie in your arms and keep you warm. I'm pretty sure that's not standard procedure for Anglicare. <laughs> Mr. Smith in room 45 is a little cold. Can you send a young girl to cuddle him in bed? Uh, no, that's not going to happen. But that is what the smartest, smartest advisors to the king wanted to do. They wanted him to warm up. They wanted his blood to warm up, if you get the picture. And so verse 3, we, re- we read that they searched throughout the land of Israel for a beautiful girl. And they found Abishag from Shunem and brought her to the king. They looked for a beautiful woman to be his human hot water bottle. And they found a beautiful woman, verse 4a. The girl was very beautiful, there's the word again, and she looked after the king and took care of him. Twice we're told that the woman was beautiful. Why would that matter? It's almost like we're encouraged to remember another time that David saw a beautiful woman, Bathsheba. She was beautiful. And look what happened. And now we get to the first verses of 1 Kings and we're told that they found a beautiful, they looked for a beautiful woman and they found a beautiful woman. And we're reading this thinking, face slap. And when David saw Bathsheba back in 2 Samuel 11 verse 2, he saw her, he took her and he slept with her. And now in this frail state, his advisors take another young, beautiful girl for him. Sometimes desperate times call for desperate measures. 
and people break the rules to fix a problem. I don't know if it was stupidity or whether it was disobedience, but these advisors made a bad call, a really bad call. And the whatever works strategy is a bad strategy if it's unholy and unwise. A whatever works strategy is bad. So what happens next with David's human heater? Verse 4b. But the king had no sexual relations with her. Uh, Literally, he did not know her. She lay with him in bed, we presume, but that's all that happened. There are two options. One is that he wanted to remain pure. The other option is that he was too old, if you know what I mean. The once potent potentate is now impotent. Is there any hope for God's people when the king is so frail? Has God left his people in the hands of a man unable to barely function? Has God deserted his people? Well, remember what I said before. God acts by making promises. And one of the biggest promises he ever made was made directly to King David back in 2 Samuel 7 from verse 12. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. And verse 16, your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time and your throne will be secure forever. King David was not the guy who was going to be the ruler to solve all the problems. He was not going to be the ultimate ruler of God's people. And so even though King David had lost his potency, God remained potent. God remained powerful and his promises remained true. Look, I I reckon that if I was amongst God's people at the time, I'd be a bit discouraged. Here's King David. He can barely shower himself, and yet he's the great Messiah of God's people. Where is God? What's he doing? Has he forgotten us? Has he left us? I doubt it's the only time in history that people have thought that. I reckon at times in my darkest moments I've thought, God, where are you? I wonder if you've ever thought that yourself. When life is really hard for you or for the world and you just wonder, has God deserted us? But the key to understanding God's kingdom is that he keeps his promises. With God's promises, it's not if, it's when. It's not if, it's when. Which is why I found great comfort as I read this week from the start of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Have a listen to verses 7 to 9. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this. 
For he is faithful to do what he says, and he's invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Life can be very, very hard. Hard for you personally. Hard for people close to you. Hard for our world at the moment. But God is faithful. And so we wait with expectation. And as the frail King David lies in his geriatric bed in his palace, turns out there's some movement at the station about his succession. People are getting ready to get a new king. And it starts with one of his sons, verse 5. About that time, David's son Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, okay, he began boasting, I'll make myself king. So he provided himself with chariots and charioteers and recruited 50 men to run in front of him. That's what you do if you want to be king, I guess. He thinks it's time to run for the throne, so he gets 50 people to run in front of him. And he launches this lavish and expensive campaign to be king. It's a little bit like those people in Australia who are exceedingly rich. No one wants to vote for them, but they spend millions and millions of dollars on commercials. You feel that a bit with Adonijah, don't you? But there are problems with Adonijah. Big problems with Adonijah. Verse 6a. Now his father, King David, of whom we've been hearing, had never disciplined him at any time, even by asking, why are you doing that? In other words, Adonijah is a delinquent. He's never been disciplined by his dad, not just to say you're wrong, but not even to question his behaviour even once. The great King David you might get to speak at a parenting conference, you probably wouldn't. Because he's failed in his fatherly duties and now his unruly son is going to try and rule the kingdom. King David didn't even question his son about his behaviour. His son could do anything he liked. Do you reckon that King David loved that son? The son that he never disciplined? The son that he never questioned to say, mate, what are you doing? Or why are you doing that? Do you think he loved that son? I don't think so. Because a loving father disciplines his child. An unloving father never disciplines his child. Remember, that's actually a way, fathers, that, that we love our kids. And as I address the fathers, I address also the mothers who are in partnership. Or if you're a single parent, then it's just you. But I tell you what, this is a way that we love our kids. By giving them boundaries, by telling them no, by punishing them. It's a way of showing love. You say, oh, my parents don't love me. They're always punishing me. They're always disciplining me. Well, do you want to know a kid who's never loved? It's a parent who lets them get away with everything. Setting and keeping boundaries for your children is what you need to do. And kids, if your parents tell you, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, you think, oh, they mustn't love me. No, they love you. They're not supposed to be harsh. The Bible makes it very clear. And you are supposed to obey them. That's very clear as well. But that is what love looks like. Don't do what David did for Adonijah. 
But there's another problem with Adonijah, 6b. Adonijah had been born next after Absalom, and he was very handsome. Very, very handsome. What we have here is another Absalom. Another son who will try and knock his dad off the throne. It feels like half of 2 Samuel is all about the adventures of Absalom. The stunningly, amazingly, wonderfully handsome Absalom. You can read about him. And what kind of nice thing could we say about Adonijah? He's very handsome. Oh dear. He is Absalom Mark II. And it's shaping up that it's going to be a big problem. And so Adonijah raises support for his bid to be king. Verses 7 and 8. Adonijah took Joab son of Zeruah and Abiathar the priest into his confidence. Let's have a bit of a plotting meeting. And they agreed to help him become king. We'll run your campaign, Adonijah. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, that's a key name, Shimei, Ray, and David's personal bodyguard refused to support Adonijah. Adonijah's working the room. He's working out his numbers, seeing if he's got a base to be able to roll his dad. But not everybody was on board, including Nathan the prophet. Nathan the prophet... He was the bloke who said to David, when he talked about the parable of the shepherd and the sheep, he said, you are that man. Remember him? He's a very important guy. He speaks the truth. He seems to know what he's talking about. Anyway, we skip to verse 11. Nathan then visits Bathsheba. Remember Bathsheba? She's the one that David took because he fancied her and then knocked off her first husband. Anyway... Nathan, verse 11, went to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, important connection there, and he asked her, haven't you heard that Haggath's son, not your son to David, but Haggath's son to David, Adonijah, has made himself king, and our Lord David doesn't even know about it. Bit of a problem, really. Nathan finds Bathsheba, and tells Bathsheba the plans. And Nathan tells Bathsheba that if, if Solomon doesn't become king, then it's going to be, well, all hell will break loose. Verse 12, if you want to save your own life, Bathsheba, and the life of your son Solomon, follow my advice. Because that other guy who wants to be king, if he becomes king, then for you and your son... And so he gives Bathsheba this plan, verses 13 and 14. Go at once to King David and say to him, My lord the king, didn't you make a vow and say to me, Your son Solomon will surely be the next king and will sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? And while you're still talking with him, I'll come in and confirm everything you've said. There's King David shivering in his nursing home bed and the woman he took in adultery, who he's now married to, and from whom they bore the son Solomon, is there with him. And so verse 15, Bathsheba went into the king's bedroom. He was very old now, and Abishag was taking care of him. Hello, Bathsheba, have you met Abishag? Abishag, Bathsheba, Bathsheba, Abishag, hello, right. Then Bathsheba tells King David about the slow-moving train wreck that's about to blow up in Israel. Verses 16 to 18. 
Bathsheba bowed down before the king. What can I do for you? He asked her. She replied, my Lord, David, you made a vow before the Lord your God when you said to me, your son Solomon will surely be the next king and will sit on my throne. But instead, Adonijah has made himself king. And my Lord, the king doesn't even know about it. Sneaky, undisciplined Adonijah has tried to nick the throne from his dad. And more than that, he wants to nick it from his half-brother, Solomon. And so Bathsheba warns David about Adonijah. And Solomon's mum, she doesn't want it to happen. She wants to be the mum of the new king because she knows that her life depends on it. And she knows that it will undermine the rule of King David if it doesn't happen. Verses 20 to 21. And now, my lord, the king, all Israel is waiting for you to announce who will become king after you. If you don't act, my son Solomon and I will be treated as criminals as soon as my lord, the king, has died. Things are getting serious for the kingdom. The kingdom's in crisis. And then Nathan pops in, has a similar conversation with David, explains it all, and then skipping to verse 27, we read, he says, Has my lord the king really done this without letting any of his officials know who should be the near king? Nathan can't believe that this political manoeuvring by Adonijah could be happening without the king's knowledge or blessing. Not only is King David looking powerless, he's looking a bit confused or maybe even a bit forgetful. But all this has happened because the unruly son, Adonijah, has been sneaky and he has hidden all of his political moves from his father, the king. So David sorts out the mess and he tells Bathsheba, verse 29, and the king repeated his vow. As surely as the Lord lives, who has secured me from every danger, your son Solomon will be the new king and will sit on my throne this very day, just as I vowed to you before the Lord, the God of Israel. David repeats his promise that Solomon's going to be king with the biggest vow possible, kind of like, you know, I promise on a stack of Bibles kind of thing. He solemnly swears that his successor is going to be Solomon. He makes it clear, Solomon will be king. He swears that Solomon will be king. And then at that moment, it it kind of seems like he's got that extra spring in his step, that he's found that lost executive power. And so verse 32, the great King David says this, Then King David ordered, Call Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Zehoida. And when they came into the king's presence, the king said to them, Take Solomon and my officials down to Gihon Spring. Solomon is to ride on my own mule, the king's mule. That's important. There, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet are to anoint him king over Israel. Blow the ram's horn and shout, Long live King Solomon! Then escort him back here and he'll sit on my throne. He will succeed me as king, for I've appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. David's got a plan. He wants to run a quick coronation service before pesky Adonijah steals the throne. King David is going to make sure that the right king sits on the throne. 
even though there's been all this politicking and pork barrelling and every other trick in the book, Adonijah is not going to steal the throne from his father David, not over his living body. But in the end, he's not going to steal the throne from the one that the king, that God's king, has chosen. In the end, it's not about human politics. God's in control. And that's what Benaniah recognises as he hears the word of God's King David. Verse 36 and 37, he says, Amen! Hallelujah! Yes, yes, yes! Benaniah, son of Jehoiada, replied, May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the King, decree that it happen. And may the Lord be with Solomon as he's been with you, my Lord, the King. And may he make Solomon's reign even greater than yours. Something's different here. See, in the end, it doesn't really matter whether it's Morrison or Albanese or Biden or Trump. The leader here is the special leader of God's special people. And it's more than just politics. The people of God in the centuries before Jesus, they, back then, this is where it's different to today, they then were the physical embodiment of the kingdom of God. You could look at the kingdom of God on a map. There it is. You can look at the people in the kingdom of God. That's where they live. But today, God's kingdom is spiritual, not physical. And the kings of God's kingdom back then were God's appointed leaders in a different way to what they are today. In fact, those kings were all his anointed rulers. They were anointed with oil when they were given the job. It's a funny old thing to think about, isn't it? You know, Scott Morrison becomes Prime Minister and you grab a bit of olive oil and sprinkle all over his head. You wouldn't expect that to happen, would you? That's what happened. And here's how it happened to Solomon, verse 38 to 40. So Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and the king's bodyguard took Solomon down to Kehon Spring with Solomon riding on King David's own mule. There Zadok, the priest, took the flask of olive oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon with the oil. Then they sounded the ram's horn and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon! And all the people followed Solomon into Jerusalem, playing flutes and shouting for joy. The celebration was so joyous and noisy that the earth shook with the sound, even before they invented subwoofers. A time of rejoicing. David's son is on the throne, and it's the right son. It's King Solomon. And the celebration is joyful. They are so excited, they are so happy. They've anointed Solomon with oil, which means he's now the anointed one. Do you know what the Hebrew word is for anointed? You'd be forgiven for not knowing. But it's Messiah, or as we often say, Messiah. The anointed one is Messiah. And when they translated it from the Old Testament Hebrew into the New Testament Greek, you know what the word was? Christos, from which we get Christ. So Messiah means Christ, which means anointed one, which means that David was the Messiah. And as soon as they get out the bottle of olive oil and sprinkle it all over Solomon, what happens to him? 
He's Messiahed. He's, he's Christed. He's anointed. He becomes the Christ, the anointed one. He's the Messiah. And we need to understand this as we read the text about what the Messiah does or should do or didn't do. Who else is the Messiah? Well, the most famous of all, of course, is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. He is the one who would sit on the throne of the kingdom of God a thousand years later. He is the one that all those promises ultimately came true in, that were given to David in 2 Samuel 7. And this is really important as we understand 1 Kings over the next few weeks or months. We're going to spend quite a bit of time looking at kings. There's going to be some awesome kings. There are going to be some really bad kings. But why do we have them in our Bible at all? Why would we spend half a year looking at some old dead kings? It's because when we understand these kings, we understand more of the true king. It helps us understand more about Jesus when we understand more about David and Solomon and those that come afterwards. The kings of one kings tell us about King Jesus. That is why it's in our Christian Bible. And it's deeply practical for us today as Christians in 2021. But anyway, the story's not over. Not yet. Adonijah is still getting ready to become king. And he hears all the noise. We read in verse 41, Adonijah and his guests heard the celebrating and shouting just as they were finishing their banquet and cleaning up for the night. And when Joab heard the sound of the ram's horn, he asked, what's going on? Why is the city in such an uproar? And while he was still speaking, Jonathan, son of Abiah, the priest, arrived. Come in, and Adonis said to him, for you're a good man. You must have some good news. Tell us about the party. Give us the good news. Not at all, Jonathan replied. Our Lord King David has just declared Solomon king. What? We're having a pre-coronation party here. We've got together kind of like to make the plans for how we're going to make Adonijah king. And you're saying that the other guys pipped us to the post? Really? That's bad news. David hasn't lost control after all. He, he might find it hard to keep warm, but he hasn't forgotten how to make things happen. And so he has. Adonijah has missed out. Which means that all of the people who sided with Adonijah are looking pretty scared. Verse 49. Then all of Adonijah's guests jumped up in panic from the banquet table and quickly scattered. It's one way to finish off your dinner party in a hurry. They go. The enemies of God's king are defeated. The true king is seated on the throne. And the true king is going to rule God's people under God's rule. See, what Adonijah and his mates were doing is not new at all. Many people follow their own king, even today, especially today. People make idols for themselves and they worship those idols. All sorts of things that, that make us have pleasure. They, this is the world. People bow down to the king they choose. And they ignore the one true king. But in the end, 
the true king will be seen to be truly ruling. As John Woodhouse helpfully notes in his terrific book on one kings that that I'm really loving reading as I'm preparing these talks. What we see here is exactly what we see in Philippians chapter 2 in the New Testament. When all the world will see that Jesus is the true king, the true Messiah. Philippians 2, 10 to 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, every human and every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The time is coming when every knee will bow before Jesus. The time is coming when every person will be forced to say that Jesus is Lord. Which is why we want them to say it before Jesus returns. Before Jesus comes before they go to be with him or be judged by him. Because if they haven't done it before their death or before Christ's return, it will be through clenched teeth. It'll be through forced, bended knee. Because when people reject the true king, the true Messiah, the true Lord, judgment day will come and bring judgment and justice. Because those who reject God's king face judgment. And that is what Adonijah felt. The pretty guy. The guy with the 50 chariots and stuff. He felt this as he realised that his half-brother was now king. Verse 50. Adonijah was afraid of Solomon. So he rushed to the sacred tent and grabbed onto the horns of the altar. This undisciplined, sneaky, would-be king is now terrified of the coming judgment of the Messiah, the anointed one, King Solomon. He's terrified of his half-brother who now sits on the throne of the kingdom of God. And so he grabs onto the horn of the altar in in what is just before the temple, you know, the, the, the tent temple. And he holds that and he seeks mercy. Verse 51. And word soon reached Solomon that Adonijah, his half-brother, had seized the horns of the altar in fear and that he was pleading, let King Solomon swear today that he will not kill me. Adonijah, who rejected the true king, is now pleading for mercy from the Messiah. He's coming to the altar and pleading for amnesty. Adonijah seeks mercy from the Messiah. He's seeking mercy from Messiah Solomon. What would you do if you were Solomon? How would you respond to this rascal who tried to get to the throne before you did? It's a pretty powerful and sobering thing to realise that you're not the king. It's a pretty big step to come to the Messiah, the Christ, and to seek compassion and mercy from his throne. I reckon this is one of the main reasons that a lot of people don't become followers of Jesus, because it takes humility. It takes courage. It takes honesty. And I reckon that's actually what we seem to see in Adonijah, at least in this moment. 
But what's the Messiah going to do? Verse 52. Solomon replied, If he proves himself to be loyal, not a hair on his head will be touched. But if he makes trouble, he will die. So King Solomon summoned Adonijah and they brought him down from the altar. He came and bowed respectfully before King Solomon, who dismissed him, saying, Go on home. See, the Messiah promises mercy to the man who asked for help. This man realized that he was under the judgment of God's king, and so he did the only smart thing. He said, Mercy. Mercy, Messiah. Mercy, King. And at this moment, as he comes to the Messiah, the Messiah offers him mercy. He gives him peace and safety if he truly follows the Messiah. But yet, spoiler alert, even after receiving the mercy of the Messiah, Adonijah is a problem. He's not loyal and it won't end up well for him. But what about you? Have you found mercy in the Messiah? Are you sure that if Jesus returns tonight, then you're safe? I reckon nearly everyone in this room has, but probably not everyone. Have you put your trust in the right king? Or have you put your trust in the wrong king? Is it time to trust the true king? 2021 has started with some anxiety. When the US sneezes, Australians catch a cold. When there's chaos in America, we feel instability down under. And maybe it's because we believe that the land of the free should be the place where democracy works the best. But the political events in the US remind us afresh about the need to put our hope in the true Messiah. Not a president or premier or prime minister. Jesus is the one God has put on his throne to rule the universe. And if we follow the true Messiah, we will have an unfading hope. Let me pray. Loving Father, we thank you so much that Jesus is still on his throne. We come to Jesus, and Jesus, we bow down before you as our Messiah. We thank you that what it meant for you to be Messiah was that you would die for us. And we thank you that that's why you can really show us mercy, genuine mercy, genuine peace, genuine forgiveness, genuine reconciliation. And we ask that in the times of trouble, times when we are feeling it hard, that we would know you're on your throne and trust in you to rule. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Jamboree Anglican Church. For more information, head to jamborooanglican.com.